Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. So, um, I've been slowly reading a wonderful book by Mark Gerson called The Telling. The Telling is about the Haggadah, the Jewish text which sets forth the order of the Passover Seder. When the Haggadah is read at the Seder, it is a a fulfillment of the command of Moses to tell the story about what God did to bring the Jews out of Egyptian slavery. Uh, Haggadah, or actually I think it's pronounced Haggadah, actually means telling. It means telling. Among many other things, Gerson makes a compelling case that the unique and disproportionate contribution of the Jewish people to humanity over many millennia is the result of the commitment of generation after generation of Jewish families to teach their children in the context of the home. This is very important. I would say that the success of the Jewish people actually began, of course, with God's covenant to uh, Abraham, where God promised Abraham that he would bless him and bless the world through him. But clearly, one of the ways that this blessing has been perpetuated for thousands of years is the commitment of Jewish families to tell their children God's story and teach them God's commands in the context of the home. So when Moses negotiated with Pharaoh, he intimated, as Moses was negotiating the Exodus, he intimated that the young would be delivered along with the old, or perhaps even before the old. Exodus chapter 10, verse 9, Moses says to Pharaoh, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our Daughters. There's actually a lot made in Judaism about that statement that Moses mentions the young before the old. Gerson, um, who is a, a Jewish man, wrote, the young would come first. This might be the most radical and important idea in the history of the world. Moses commands his people to orient their religion and their philosophy, indeed their lives, around the primacy and centrality of children. If one generation does not sufficiently educate its children, then the entire chain of memory, corpus of knowledge, and tradition is destroyed. It does not matter how long education would have worked until that point. Its success depends on the comprehensive and enthusiastic participation of almost everyone in every generation. So in the existential rush out of Egypt, meaning the night before deliverance, the night of Passover, Moses took the time to talk about how important it was that the story of what God had done and was doing at that moment would be told to succeeding generations. Here they are sitting there, three million people with their shoes on, having this Passover meal, getting ready to to, to, to go out of Egypt, to be chased, uh, they knew there was a possibility that this would happen, to be chased by the most powerful army in the world. But Moses takes the time to say things like this, Exodus 12, 26. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes. And in the same story, Exodus 13, on that day, tell your son... I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. Moses later continued with this um, emphasis on teaching children by not only saying during the Exodus that they should tell the story of what God had done, but they also needed to teach their children God's commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 will be important to everything else I say today. Moses said, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Again, Moses said, these commandments are not only supposed to be on your lips, 
are on your hearts, but you're supposed to speak them to your children, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And the locus for this telling was to be the home. Gerson writes this, the educational process takes place in the home. Again, this is Gerson writing about the Haggadah, the, the, the telling, the, the, which is the, the text for the telling of the story of the Exodus at the, at the Passover Seder. The educational process, he says, not only for that, but for everything in Judaism, takes place in the home. The earliest Jewish communities had a robust educational system thousands of years before anyone else in the world believed in having one. Still, education was never a function that could be outsourced. The questions in the Haggadah were asked by children, but they are not answered by teachers, rabbis, or anyone else. They are answered by parents. This seminal moment of Jewish education occurs in the home with the parents providing instruction to their children. So, the survival and perpetuation of Judaism... The existence of the nation of Israel, especially in light of the rise and fall of nations and entire civilizations through history. The unique contribution of Jewish people to humanity throughout history. Gerson credits all of this and more to the Jewish commitment to teach their children in the home. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, for the past several months, we've been in a teaching emphasis around the Proverbs. And uh, we began by doing a kind of an overview series called Ancient Wisdom, where we talked about how that wisdom is, is essentially an understanding of how God designed the world to work. Well, last week we began with a wonderful teaching from... Um, from Melvin and Ashley Cross, we began a series on the rich, on rich relationships that I'll continue today and, and bring it back to the fundamental truths of the Proverbs. And the setting of Proverbs is a Jewish dad and mom telling their child, in this case, their son, about wisdom and teaching their son how God designed the world and life to work. When you read Proverbs, this is how you have to see it. It's a dad and mom teaching their child how the world works and how to be successful within it. Proverbs 1, 8 through 9. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Or Proverbs 6.20, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. And their teaching was what? Their teaching was love wisdom. If you can't get anything else, get wisdom. In fact, if you get wisdom, you'll get everything else because if you get wisdom, you'll understand the way God designed the world to work. And you'll be able to live within it successfully. And you might remember, those of you who've been tracking through the teaching, that, that wisdom is understanding the way God designed the world, beginning in the beginning. So you have uh, one of the teaching techniques that this mom and dad use is they introduce the personification of wisdom in the person of an attractive woman. They're talking to their son. And this, uh, this woman uh, uh, is frequently called Lady Wisdom. And here's part of what she says in Proverbs 8.25. She says, wisdom says, I was born before he had made the earth. When he marked off the earth's foundations, I was the architect at his side. I was his constant delight, rejoicing always in his presence. And how happy I was with the world he created. How I rejoiced with the human family. So you get this idea that wisdom speaks from the position of being at God's side and participating in God's design of the world. This is very important. I was there, she says, when he made the world and how wonderful it was. And wisdom says, I rejoiced with the human family. Now, I want to take this now and I want to apply it today and next week 
to a teaching about God's design for the family. How did God design the family and God's, uh, God's design for marriage, the building block of the family? So, if we're going to understand, if we're going to have wisdom about how the world is meant to work, we need to understand God's design for the family and the unique role of parents, which is what I'm going to emphasize today and maybe tomorrow, uh, next Sunday, the unique role of parents to tell their children God's story and to teach their children God's commands. So let's talk about how God designed the family. How did God in all of his wisdom design the family. We actually learn about that as we do about so much else in how God designed the world in the first few chapters of Genesis, the Genesis narrative, which isn't intended to be a science manual. It's intended to be God's story and God telling us things he wants us to know about how he set the world in motion. Key to that was his design of the family. As soon as there was more than one person The first man and woman, God joined them together. He brought the woman to the man, and the man said, Genesis 2.23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, God, as with everything else he does, had a purpose for joining them together. Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So this first family was to join with God in fulfilling his purposes on the earth. They, created in God's image, were to have children, which necessitates the union of male and female, husband and wife, who would multiply God's image through the earth and in so doing spread God's rule everywhere. Now, of course, that first family, through their own choices and actions, messed up God's ideal. But never forget that God is always working to redeem and restore people through Jesus Christ to what he planned in the beginning. This is fundamentally important for understanding everything about life. If you want to know what God is up to in the world, he is up to bringing us back to what he planned in the beginning. This is absolutely true for the first institution that God created, the family. It's particularly important to emphasize God has a purpose for the family and the way he designed the family. The family exists not for itself, but for God. And as with everything else in our life, we must always ask the question, what is God's plan for the family? What is God's plan for my family? Now, we have to acknowledge that because of the fall, none of our families meet God's ideal. None of our families are perfect or function flawlessly, even those which appear to be ideal. And of course, we must acknowledge that there are a variety of family realities that are present in a room like this and present among those who are watching online. But regardless of your specific family situation, your family is loved by God, important to God, and purposed by God. I read these, this section to a divorced single woman who doesn't have children. I was wanting to make sure that I would uh, speak in a way that relates to, to, to everyone. And uh, I said, what, what do you think when I'm talking about family and God's purpose of the family and God's ideal of marriage and so on? And she said, families come in all different types. I'm in a family. I'm a daughter. I'm an aunt. I love to talk about family, and this is making me think about God's plan for my family. So I hope what I say will relate to families um, uh, in, in, in whatever form they come. But I'm going to speak about this in terms of God's ideal. When Jesus spoke about marriage, the building block of the family, he referred all the way back to God's original design. Guys, this is fundamentally important. 
Jesus talked to, when, when someone talked to Jesus about the family, he didn't kind of start some new discussion. He went back to the very beginning and he quoted from Genesis. He said, Matthew 19, 4, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So when you think about family, I encourage you to think about God's design and purpose for the family. What if we all thought about family in light of God's purposes? What if each of us asked, how is my family partnering with God and what he's doing in the world? Many people seem to think that the family exists to make them happy. But the fact is, the family exists to make God happy. He designed the family. Now, he did it for us, but he did it first and foremost for himself, for his reason, for his purposes. So the family is the first and most important place where God accomplishes his purpose. He is not doing something different in the family than what he's doing elsewhere. He is using the family to work out his purposes. We become who we are in the environment of home. We are shaped by our families. Family is formative. The home is formative. And the family must partner with God to help each of us become more and more who God made us to be and to do more and more what God made us to do. So with that in mind, uh, let me talk about five things we learn in Proverbs about the relationship between husbands and wives. And now I'm saying this because I'm then going to come back when this is all said and done to talk about how important it is then for husbands and wives, for parents to teach their children God's story and God's command, okay? I'm moving quickly because I've got a lot that I need to say, and um, uh, I, I want to make sure that I, I get to some things that I think are critically important to talk about. I warn you, some of what I'll say the next little bit is uh, PG-13. Uh, if you have... You know, children who aren't in K-Port for some reason and you're concerned about that. Just a little warning. Five things we learned. Some of you just got interested for the first time. You haven't even been awake. And you said PG-13, I'm in. Click, click. All right. So five things. I'm talking about God's design for marriage and the family. So let's talk about marriage for a few minutes and then I'm going to get into this bigger picture about family. It's been a long time, years, since I've taught at any length about parenting, and I am feeling compelled, I have been for many months, feeling compelled to talk about parenting, to encourage parents, and especially as it concerns some of the challenging things that we're facing today in today's culture. So buckle your seatbelt. Uh, five things we learned about Proverbs, uh, in Proverbs about the relationship to, between husbands and wives. First of all, marriage is a covenant. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16 Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman and with her seductive words. Remember, this is a mom and dad talking to their son. So they're talking about him being tempted by a woman. If they were had been talking to uh, their daughter, I'm sure they would have been. It's, so this isn't anything negative about a, a, a woman here, but they're talking to their son. You, you understand that's the context. And so they say to this, this, this young man, wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Covenant is an extremely important word, of course, when we talk about marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It's a promise made before God and witnesses to love one another and to be faithful to one another until death. And this covenant can only be broken for the most extreme reasons. Covenant love, of course, is not about something we feel. I've done a lot of teaching about this in the past. I won't get into it at length today, except to say that covenant love is about what we do regardless of what we feel. We don't stay in a marriage because we feel like it. We stay in a marriage because we made a promise before God. 
And we made a promise before God and witnesses, and that is a covenant that is so sacred in the eyes of God and needs to be sacred in all of our eyes as well. Um, there's a wonderful book written by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. And I'll read a couple of paragraphs. I, I like the way he frames this. He says, when you realize something is sacred, far from making it boring, it gives birth to a new reverence, a take-your-breath-away realization that something you may have been taking for granted is far more profound, far more life-giving and life-transforming than you may have ever realized. I love marriage, and I love my marriage, Thomas writes. I love the fun parts, the easy parts, and the pleasurable parts, but also the difficult parts, the parts that frustrate me but help me understand myself and my spouse on a deeper level, the parts that are painful but that crucify the aspects of me that I hate, the parts that force me to my knees and teach me that I need to learn to love with God's love instead of just trying harder. Marriage has led me to deeper levels of understanding, more pronounced worship, and a sense of fellowship than I ever knew existed. When we understand that marriage is sacred and that it is a sacred covenant before God, before God, it should add a depth of meaning to what it means to be in that covenant relationship called marriage. However, that doesn't cancel out the next point, which is marriage is for lovers. I wish so much that Sharon was here today to be embarrassed on the front row when I say things like I'm about to say. By the way, if you don't know us, we've been married 38 years and um, so we have some experience at the practice of the institution of marriage. 38 years, probably 35 of them have probably been happy. You know how that goes. Uh, I'm sure she's watching. Love you. Uh, <laughs> marriage is for lovers. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19, there's this glorious section in the Proverbs. This talks about physical intimacy in marriage. Uh, May your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving deer, pardon me, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. Hallelujah. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. So when I talk about covenant marriage and the sacredness and the fact that we keep our promise because we made a promise, it doesn't take away the fact that actually... The studies that you see on this subject show that people who are in a long-term committed relationship in marriage actually experience more sexual satisfaction than people who aren't, which goes against what the idea that you would get if you watch very much Netflix. But that, that's, I encourage you, look it up, look up the studies. The fact is that when you're in a covenant relationship, a till death do you part relationship, and you commit to do love, regardless of how you feel, then the, the, then, then there, the, there are these seasons where you are intoxicated by one another's love. I never think that we should give up on the idea of the intoxication of love because we, we believe that, that marriage is first of all a covenant that we make to each other. So, uh, you know, look, look at what the apostle Paul said. The Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians 7.1, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. The Apostle Paul essentially says, listen, it's not enough to say I have a headache. It's not enough to say uh, I've got an early meeting in the morning. He says, really, the only excuse you have to not uh, meet each other's needs in this way is if you are so holy that you've set aside a special time for prayer. And if you've mutually consented that that's the reason why you can't meet each other's needs, well, then you, that's okay for a time, but when you're finished praying, come back together. Third, marriage is a partnership. Marriage is a partnership. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 1, the wise woman builds her house. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Uh, so marriage is a partnership. A lot is made about the fact in the New Testament uh, that the responsibility of self-sacrificial leadership is placed on the husband. 
He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and died for it. Who wouldn't want to follow or submit, if you would rather use that term, to that kind of self-sacrificial leadership? But even with that in mind, the whole of Scripture and our experience teaches us that marriage is a partnership between equals where each partner plays the role they are assigned and gifted to play. We serve each other and we lead and serve the family together. Tim Keller comments on this uh, principle when he writes, in ancient times, women were generally not given an education. Yet in Proverbs, the mother is an authoritative voice right alongside the father. And to be able to instruct someone in the terse and dense poetry of wisdom required education and training. These sayings assume a man's wife was educated and a true partner in learning and instruction. And when this passage says the wise woman builds her house, it's not talking about a physical dwelling. It's talking about the foundations for a family's life and success. She's building the house socially, economically, materially, emotionally, spiritually. I like this picture. Again, Scripture shows up in a countercultural way. It defies the culture of the day, and it acknowledges a role for women that was not being acknowledged any place else in the, in the ancient world. But here you have this supremely intelligent woman who, along with her husband, is partnering with him in building the home and all that that entails. Fourth, marriage is a friendship. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, again warns that these parents warn their son about, about a wayward woman who was left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. The word partner here is important because the word partner here actually is defined in the original language as the closest of friends. So this woman is in, is in a closest of friends relationship with someone with whom she ha has made a marriage covenant. And I like this idea that marriage is friendship. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, Anne Lamott um, is someone I enjoy reading, and in her latest book, she's talking about recently uh, getting married, and she's upset at her husband, and she texts one of her friends who's had a successful marriage over a long period of time, and she's complaining about her husband, uh, and uh, you shouldn't complain to your friend about your husbands, by the way. Talk to the counselor. Don't talk to your friends. But anyway, uh, she's complaining to her friend, and her friend texts back and says, I think you've forgotten he's your friend. And Anne said, that stopped me in my tracks. She said, could you say that again? She said, he's your friend that you get to sleep with and wake up with. That's what married life is at its most basic, a friend, your teammate, a person you trust and look forward to talking to about anything, someone who seems to really, really like you and who you like too. I find that helpful. I can't help but think about the passage in Proverbs that says, wounds from a friend can be trusted wounds from a friend can be trusted. Then it talks about how you don't even want to receive a kiss from an enemy. But nonetheless, the wounds of a friend, if you've been married long enough, you've been wounded by your friend. This is part of the reality. In fact, um, um, even when the, the innocence of our marriage is gone, um, uh, we, we still know that our partner is our friend. The word innocence actually comes from a Latin word which means not yet wounded. And at some point in your relationship, you lose your innocence because inevitably partners, friends, will wound one another. Well, it's important to remember that that the wounds from a friend can be trusted and that because we're in covenant, because we love each other, and because we're partnering together, we're going to maintain this friendship that we have and we're going to get through the offenses and inevitably come in a long-term relationship and we're going to know that we're in covenant with someone who ultimately we can trust. And then fifth, and this is where I want to spend the rest of my time today, marriage is for teaching. Everybody doing okay? I know I'm moving quickly and saying a lot and so on. Um, marriage is for teaching. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring peace and prosperity. 
Proverbs chapter 31 talks about this uh, amazing woman, this, uh, this, this, uh, this wife of noble character. And, and the, 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 the writer of Proverbs says, who can find someone like that? She's worth more than rubies. And this is part of what this woman, who has do, doing a lot of things successfully, does. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. So, never taught about this uh, in fact, all, all of this is new material, but I've never taught about this in, in my 30 years of leadership here. I've been thinking a lot about this, that, that a husband and wife in the home need to see themselves as teachers and need to tell their children God's story and teach their children God's commands. Parents are responsible for the moral instruction of their children. Now remember again, Proverbs is a dad and mom sitting there talking to their children. Parents are, I say this without equivocation, responsible for the moral education of their children. Some of us would like to avoid that responsibility and give it to somebody else. Proverbs 22.6 says, start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now, that doesn't mean that we can determine outcomes. Remember that the Proverbs tell us, that, remember I've taught about how the Proverbs aren't promises, the Proverbs tell us how all things being equal, this is how God designed the world to work, and this is how it works most of the time. There are exceptions, though, to the rule. Our children have free will and ultimately will make their own choices and be responsible for their own choices, but it is our responsibility to teach them the way God designed life to work. So um, let's let me spend the rest of my time on this, and then I'll pick this up in some form next week. We'll see if anybody comes back next week. Two perspectives on parents as teachers. The first perspective is to understand the importance of the family table. Understand the importance of the family table. I have taught about this and written about this at some length in the past, though I'll take a little further today than I ever have before. The moral formation of the child must begin in the home, and this can happen in a formal way, but my experience is that a lot of it happens just doing life with your kids, being present to your kids, answering their questions, asking them questions. In in our family, both as I was being raised and as we were raising our three kids to adulthood, a lot of moral formation literally took place at the kitchen table. A lot of conversations happened because we had, we had dinner together and life was happening and we're talking about life and Sharon and I have this sense of moral obligation to guide our children. Um, uh, in the Hospital Believer, I write, how that sociologist Cody C. Delastrati explored the most recent scientific literature for Atlantic Monthly and discovered that the single most important element in raising kids who are drug-free, healthy, intelligent, kind human beings is frequent family dinners. The most important predictor of success for elementary age children is frequent family dinners. The primary factor in shaping vocabulary for younger children is frequent family dinners. The key variable most associated with the lower incidence of depressive and suicidal thoughts among 11 to 18 year olds is frequent family dinners. I hope you get the point that the, the fact is that the family table is very important to the formation of our children, and I like to use the family table as a metaphor for the variety of ways that we, impact, we interact with our kids in a way where they're receiving moral guidance from us. Remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy. He said, impress the commandments on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Be intentional about talking about God's commandments. Um, in a recent uh, political debate, I'm not going to get into specifics. And by the way, if I, 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 I always stay away from politics here. And if I wanted to talk about 
what I'm about to say in a political way. I'd talk about it before, not after elections. So I'll be very careful about this. I don't want to offend anybody. Don't get caught up in this. But this is an important discussion in our, in our culture right now. In a recent political debate, uh, there was a, 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 a discussion between two politicians about whether or not um, gender identity should be taught in, to kindergartens kindergartners in our public school, and one of the candidates said, uh, I think perhaps that discussion is best left at the kitchen table. And the other candidate uh, scoffed at his opponent and said, you have a lot going on at the kitchen table. And the reality is, regardless where you're at politically, one thing that we cannot concede is followers of Jesus and people who who are trying to live life the way God designed it is to give up the role of parents and the fundamentally important thing that's happening in the home where parents are accepting the responsibility to teach their children God's story and God's commands. Now, this is exactly the kind of thing you pause and say this carefully, and I'm going to ask you, though I think the response to what I'm about to say would be overwhelmingly positive, I'm going to ask you not to respond because I just don't want it to be, I just, just hear me if you would for a few seconds as I very carefully talk about something I've never talked about before, but I have been thinking and praying about this for months. Where should something as life-transforming as a dis- the discussions that are, that are ubiquitous in our culture right now around gender identity, where should those discussions primarily be happening? In a kindergarten classroom, in a public school, where I'm sure a kindergarten teacher's doing his or her absolute best to serve those children. We have a lot of fantastic teachers in our, in our congregation, for which I'm so grateful. But should that responsibility be put on a kindergartner teacher in a public school where a discussion like that cannot be attached to God or anything that has to do with the teachings of Scripture or should it be should it happen in a home where parents especially parents uh who are coming at life from a biblical christian perspective have the opportunity to talk about these issues in a way where we're asking questions about how did god design the world to be uh what what does god say and take that along with the prevailing science and all the other disciplines we should be paying attention to to have discussions with our children about a a, a subject like this now the controversies around gender identity are the last thing i want to talk about i hope i hope i never talk about this again but guys i want you to hear me as a pastor I am hearing so much right now from families in our congregation who are torn up in this discussion. I cannot tell you how many emails, how many direct messages, which isn't the best way to communicate with me, by the way. Send me an email, but I may never look at that. Uh, How many conversations in the lobby I'm having with parents who are asking me and asking our K-Port ministry and asking our youth ministry, my child's coming home and they're saying this or that, help me understand what to do. I want to encourage parents today to step up and play the role God put you in those kids' life to play. Remember, you're not supposed to respond. Let me say it like this. Let me frame the discussion this way. I'm heartbroken about three things surrounding the discussion of gender identity in our culture. I'm heartbroken around three things. First of all, I'm heartbroken for people, children and adults, who are experiencing genuine gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the technical term, a psychological term, for the distress some people feel when their internal sense of self, I'm quoting now, by the way, from a book I highly recommend to you called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. We will have it in the resource lounge in coming weeks. Gender dysphoria is a psychological term for the distress some people feel when their internal sense of self doesn't match their biological sex. It can be used as a general description of how someone feels or more formally as a psychological diagnosis. 
As a diagnosis, gender dysphoria used to be called gender identity disorder, but the name was changed to gender dysphoria in the latest edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So, I am heartbroken for people, children and adults, who are experiencing gender dysphoria. And it goes without saying that I am heartbroken for the extremely rare occurrence of someone being born intersex. Intersex um, is a term used to describe the medical conditions where a person is born with one or more atypical features in their sexual anatomy or sex chromosomes. It's extremely rare, but someone born that way is so precious to God, and, um, and I am heartbroken for folks of any age dealing with with anything in that world. If you are someone who is experiencing gender dysphoria, I desperately, desperately want this church to be a safe place for you. A safe place for you to work through what you're experiencing in a way that begins with God's love for you, his design and plan for you, what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made, which we're told in Scripture. We, we are, and God sees us in our mother's womb, and what it means to be created in God's image. I don't have all the answers. In fact, on this subject, I don't think I even have very many answers. But you are precious in the eyes of God, and you are precious to us. All right, here's the second thing. I'm heartbroken for so many children who are confused about their gender identity, not because of a diagnosable gender dysphoria, but rather because they're being pressed to question their gender by what they're learning in school or seeing in the media or how they're being influenced by their peers. This is the kind of thing I'm hearing all the time. A nine-year-old boy comes home from school. There's a class about gender identity. The nine-year-old boy has never even had a consideration in his mind of anything that would have anything to do with anything about that. But he comes home and he says to his dad with tears in his eyes, Dad, am I supposed to be thinking I'm a girl? In other words, is there something wrong with me, Dad, that I've never considered that maybe I should identify as a girl. I think about somebody in our congregation a few, a few weeks ago who told me how that their son came home crying from school because there had been a discussion for some reason in the school about divorce. And this kid came home crying and said, said to his mother, he, he never thought about the idea that his parents might get divorced. It never crossed his mind. But he comes home and he says to his mother, Mom, uh, crying, the kid's bawling. Are you and Dad going to get a divorce? Now that's one subject. It's difficult enough. But imagine that kind of scenario being played over and over in millions of homes around something as incredibly life-transforming as gender identity. Our kids in this nation are so confused, and sometimes, and it's not their fault they're confused. They're confused because... I think we've gotten confused about where these kind of conversations should be happening. And if I understand, guys, so kids now are being forced to deal with a question that has never been a serious discussion in all of human history until, if I understand it correctly, until the last 50 or 60 years. At least, I'm sure, there's been gender dysphoria. But, but a, a discussion that one would self-identify their own gender is a is a, in, in the light of human history, a brand new yesterday discussion, and our kids are confused. Here's a story. I'll just read it to you uh, in the very well-done book embodied by Preston Sprinkle, who takes a tremendously compassionate view towards individuals and families who are dealing with these kinds of issues. This is just one little story where he's making a larger point, but he said, Stephanie grew up as a stereotypically feminine girl on the autism spectrum. When she was 13 years old, she told her mother, Carol, that she was transgender. Stephanie's declaration seemed to come out of nowhere. Carol found out that Stephanie had just heard a presentation about being transgender at school, a school where over 5% of the student population identified as transgender or non-binary. Carol took Stephanie to a gender clinic to seek counsel in New Jersey. The clinician told Carol that, 
quote, I must refer to my daughter with masculine pronouns, call her by a masculine name, and buy her a binder to flatten her breasts. He recommended no therapy, and there was no consideration of the social factors that obviously affected her thinking. I was directed to put her on puberty-blocking drugs. And then Sprinkle goes on. Doctors often recommend puberty-blocking drugs for prepubescent children wrestling with their gender identity. But we don't know a lot about the long-term health risk when, it, when kids take these drugs. From what we do know, they may have an adverse effect on a person's bones, heart, and brain. And there's some scientific evidence around that he refers to. Carol feared that if she pushed back or questioned the medicalization of her child, she might lose custody of her since such questioning could be viewed as bigotry and lack of acceptance. In New Jersey, where Carol and Stephanie lived, the de quote, the Department of Education officially encourages schools to report such parents. This is heartbreaking to me. Now, I heard this third hand. I, I can't, I, I, I have the source. I trust the source of this story, but I'm going to tell you that this is anecdotal. But I, I heard just recently about uh, a, a, a classroom in a town close to us where uh, one young girl, these are uh, girls just entering into puberty, one young girl is having uh, expressed openly in a classroom questions about her gender identity. The next week, over half of the girls in the class were now questioning their gender. When I, when I think about, you guys, you know, you know, adolescence is pretty difficult as it is. It's tough being a kid. They have so much pressure, and now added to pressure upon pressure upon pressure is is this whole discussion and all that it entails, and I'm just telling you, as a pastor, watching the way this is impacting kids who we love and care about in our church family, I am heartbroken. And third and finally, I'm heartbroken for parents who are just trying to figure out how to love their kids and raise them to successful adulthood. You've got a tough job. Um, it's the message I received from a parent just a couple of years ago, a parent in the Life Christian Church. Their son went back to, I think it's an 11-year-old boy, back to school after being away for COVID for however long everybody was away. Very first week back in school, the kid comes home and in, in the classroom, the, the, it, it, like, it's just hard. I just don't understand even, regardless what your view is in on it, the, the, the level of priority <laughs> the, the headline of this subject is, is difficult for me to comprehend. First week of school back after being away from COVID, the 11-year-old boy comes home, all confused about the subject of gender. And, and the parent is sending me a message saying, Pastor, what should I do? And I've been thinking about teaching. When I teach something like this, I've been thinking about it a long time, guys. And I've been thinking about this for since summer and trying to get away from it, but feeling compelled that I need to encourage you parents. I want you to know that the church is going to take a more forward position in terms of not public preaching, but helping find resources, helping have conversations that are careful, that begin with how did God design the world to be made? How do we work through that in a world that's fallen? How do we make sure everyone feels God's love. How do we speak the truth in terms of God's story and what God commands? And we're going to have resources in K-Port. We're going to have resources in the resource lounge. And we're going to be here. The church needs to provide a voice to this. I'd like to avoid the conversation, but listen. you know. And by the way, when you're teaching God God's command, they're not commands you're making up. So you, you have to understand what Scripture actually teaches, and the church has an authoritative role to play in that discussion. We are here to support you. Don't abrogate your responsibility to teach your children. Richard Rohr, the great Franciscan priest, said we need to nurture the roles of spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers in our homes. God is present at our everyday tables after all. Home meals ought to be faith-filled meals. He wrote this in 1980. 
We need to rediscover the sanctity of the natural family as the basic institution of society. When we discover the sacred there, our fathers will know the priesthood of their fatherhood and our mothers will know the priesthood of their motherhood. I use the word priesthood intentionally because priesthood simply means the one who names the connection between the transcendent world and this world. And if you make that connection, you're a priest. Let the church... Let this priest, if you please, support you in your priesthood where you are playing the most important role in your child's life and must step up to accept responsibility to teach your children in the home. And then I'll close with uh, speak the truth in love. And now the piano player is going to come, the official piano player, the designated piano player, to play us out of the room as I've gone over. I'm gonna quit saying that because I go over every week, so what's over, I don't know. Here's a second perspective, speak the truth in love. So you owe your children the truth and you owe your children unconditional love. And here's what I've discovered, no surprise to anyone, far too often we live at the extremes when it comes to these kinds of issues. We're either angry, you know, manifest as culture warriors screaming at, you know, in the school board meeting. By the way, if your kids are in a school, I encourage you to get involved in school board meetings. But don't, can I say this gently? Don't be a screamer. Be a careful, thoughtful, loving, Christ-like advocate for truth. If I could just gently say that, okay? There's a way to have this, the discussion needs to be had. Let's not turn people off to Christianity by the way we fight for Christianity. But anyway, it seems like the responses to this for people who care about the, the issue. Now, there's, a, I think, a lot of people in the middle who just want to ignore it altogether. But issues like this is it's either anger and a lot of times manifest as anger at our kids. How could you think that? How could you ask that? How could you? That, that's, not, that's not what we want to do. And then on the other hand, there's... Folks who, who emphasize the unconditional love thing and who feel like that the way that they should love their kids unconditionally is whatever they think, whatever they say, whatever's going on in their peer group, they should just say, I love you, it's okay. In fact, we're going to remake our family around what you think is a 13-year-old. And that's not love because the kid needs a parent. And the parent, as I'll talk next week, has to provide discipline. And discipline has to do with instruction. And so we need to love our kids unconditionally. There's nothing they can say that would cause us to not love them. There's nothing they could do that would cause us to not love them. We love them regardless whatever is going on. And at the same time, we love them so much that we're going to speak truth. We're gonna tell them God's story. We're gonna teach them God's commands. We're gonna to try to provide moral boundaries that will help them have the possibility of living their best possible life. And so uh, doesn't mean that you have to have all the answers next week. Some of you are thinking, oh man, I was kind of glad they were talking about this someplace else because I don't have to think about it. You're gonna to have to engage in these kind of discussions if you have kids. And it doesn't mean you're gonna have all the answers. It's like the little kid who, who said to his dad, driving in the car, he said, Dad, I know babies come from mommy's tummies, but how do they get there in the first place? And the dad hemmed and hawed and hesitated, and finally the little kid spoke up and discussed, you don't have to make something up, Dad. It's okay if you don't know the answer. And the fact is, there are a lot of answers we don't know, but we have to be present, we have to engage, we have to love, we have to be activistic, we have to accept responsibility, and I have to quit. Would you please stand with me?